You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Gestational diabetes affects about 4% of all pregnant women. What do we need to know about gestational diabetes? Joining us to discuss gestational diabetes is Director of Perinatal Medicine at UCSD Medical Center in San Diego, California, Dr. Thomas Moore. Dr. Moore, welcome to ReachMD. It's a pleasure. Let's jump on the first question, which sets the stage. What is gestational diabetes? Well, it's a, it's a unique form of diabetes that occurs uh, during pregnancy. Uh, it's, a, it's a problem of high blood sugars that uh, is confined to the period of pregnancy. If a type 1 diabetic gets pregnant, is that called gestational diabetes? No, it's not. It's called pre-existing diabetes or pre-gestational diabetes. And women who have either type 1 or type 2 diabetes uh, diagnosed before the pregnancy begins uh, are not considered in the gestational group. Uh, We focus on the women with gestational diabetes because it's a condition that really arises because of the pregnancy and uh, upon delivery of the placenta, which is probably at the central uh, cause of the condition in the first place, when that placenta delivers, uh, the disease leaves with it. I see. So really getting into the causes of gestational diabetes and also how is it diagnosed? Well, the, the cause of gestational diabetes is, without question, is the incredible amounts of steroid and peptide hormones that are produced by the placenta and, and really poured into the maternal circulation. And this includes um, progesterone and estrogen that are triple the amount that you would experience in, in a non-pregnancy state and uh, things like human placental lactogen. But, but the amazing thing is by the uh, by the start of the third trimester, after just 28 weeks, these hormone levels are three to four times normal, and the amount of insulin that the that the mater- that the mother's pancreas has to produce in order to deal with uh, a gram of carbohydrates uh, has also tripled or quadrupled, or in some cases even increased beyond that. So basically, you're 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 stressing the pancreas to compensate for all these anti-insulin hormones in a way, and some people can compensate and some people can't. Well, that's right. I think I think that uh, that nature has has developed this insulin resistant state in pregnancy, so that the fetus will always get first chance at uh, a bolus of glucose that comes in through the GI tract. So the tissues, the peripheral tissues, are made insulin resistant, so that the fetus gets the gets the glucose. But the problem, of course, is uh, if if the mother's pancreatic uh, insulin secreting ability is overwhelmed, then the blood sugars run high and then everybody uh, is disadvantaged. What's the standards for diagnosing these folks? This is in flux and nobody is particularly completely happy with the way we diagnose diabetes at present. But uh, the simple way of saying it is that um, that uh, any blood sugar over 200 generally uh, considered uh, puts the patient in in the group with diabetes, and particularly uh, the standard in the United States today is to do a 50 gram uh, glucose challenge test, and uh, if if that exceeds 
um, a number that's still in controversy, 130, 135, or 140 milligrams per deciliter, that challenge test leads to a three-hour glucose tolerance test. The gold standard today in the United States for diagnosing gestational diabetes means two abnormal values on a 100-gram three-hour glucose tolerance test. And that's, that's done at what week? And that's done uh, for every woman at 26 to 28 weeks and done in the first trimester for women at high risk. Well, let's talk about that. Who, who is at risk for gestational diabetes? Well, today uh, we recognize that approximately 4% of patients, uh, women in the United States uh, during pregnancy develop this condition, but some uh, uh, populations uh, are much have much higher risk, up to eight or even nine or ten percent. And uh, certainly, women of color are at higher risk. Women who are over the age of thirty-five, and of course, the problem that's besetting us all now is women who are obese. If someone gets gestational diabetes, what's their chances of getting permanent diabetes? Let's say type two diabetes later on. Well, you know, we used to say that once the placenta delivers, don't worry, the diabetes will leave and and uh, life will go on. But we now know that the presence, the, the response of the mother's body and pancreas to the presence of these uh, insulin-resistant hormones uh, really um, unveils uh, a tendency to develop type 2 diabetes. And in fact, within the next five years, uh, 20 to 50% of women who have had gestational diabetes will convert to overt type 2 diabetes. You know this literature better than anybody. If a woman gets gestational diabetes, what can she do to prevent herself from getting type 2 diabetes later on? There's got to be one or two most important things. I'd say that with, without question, the most important thing um, is to maintain um, something close to ideal body mass. So keeping uh, body mass index uh, down in less than the overweight range is, is the, the top thing. The next thing is um, keeping one's insulin resistance profile low in other ways, and that, of course, is a regular exercise. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Steve Edelman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Thomas Moore. We are discussing gestational diabetes. Well, Tom, real briefly, uh, how does gestational diabetes affect the baby, and does the baby have a, a higher chance of getting diabetes when he or she grows up? That's a great question. Uh, of course, the fetus depends on a regular supply of glucose coming across from the mother, but uh, the fetus uh, is very stressed by high blood sugars. And when the mother's glucose levels are high, and, and experimentally we know this is when the blood sugars are in the 180 to 200 range, um, that fetal oxygen consumption drops uh, or increases and fetal oxygen levels actually decrease uh, because of the work of storing glucose. So first of all, if the blood sugars are in any kind of a significantly elevated range, it's stressful and difficult for the baby. We find that at birth, uh, the heart has remodeled because of the secondary hypertension to the hypoxia. And, of course, it brings along risk of stillbirth and so forth. Now, at levels that are less than this, um, think of this uh, as the, um, the mother's blood sugar, whatever the mother's blood sugar is, of course, becomes the fetus's blood sugar, and the fetus cannot send these excessive amounts of glucose back, they, they, and the fetus is 
forced to store the glucose, and so uh, there's a huge amount of fat accretion uh, in the fetus. It, in the diabetes and elevated blood sugar does not make the baby's head big or the arm long or the leg long. It just causes a great deal of fat storage. Now, that has a couple of problems. Uh, number one is uh, it may cause difficulties at birth because we have a normal-sized head and possibly a great fat baby body waiting behind. But the other problem is it's now been shown that fetuses that are obese at birth have a much higher risk of developing childhood obesity and childhood diabetes, and of course, later on adult diabetes. So it is the fetus's um, life inside the mom, if hyperglycemic, sets the baby up for a number of metabolic diseases uh, as uh, an adolescent or adult. So what is the link between type 2 diabetes and women who have gestational diabetes? Well, I think the, the, the problem is that um, we, get, we develop gestational diabetes from a couple of uh, um, sources. The first is, of course, as we said, the hormones coming from the placenta make the patient insulin resistant. Uh, but the problem is if she herself has underlying insulin resistance, uh, that may come from first from, her own, from being obese. Uh, and, of course, you add the insulin resistance of obesity and pregnancy, you're a setup for gestational diabetes. Many other uh, populations uh, that we commonly work with uh, who come from uh, societies that perhaps have adapted to uh, nutrient deficiency or, if you will, starvation, um, have a, a genetic form of uh, insulin resistance, and I'm thinking of uh, Native American population, Asian Indian population, Hispanic population, and Pacific Islanders. So that even some of those populations that may not if they even come to pregnancy non-obese, the combination of the pregnancy hormones and the familial or genetic uh, insulin resistance sets them up for not only developing gestational diabetes, but makes it they're much more likely to develop uh, type 2 diabetes. Yeah, if you have the genetic tendency towards type 2, and then even though you don't have it, you get pregnant, you have all these other anti-insulin hormones causing insulin resistance, it'll, it'll bring it out during pregnancy. Well, what are the uh, best ways to treat gestational diabetes? Well, the whole goal, of course, is to be kind to our fetus uh, and so that we avoid excessive glucose delivery. Uh, we just now, recently, in perhaps the last decade, became aware of, of what normal women, uh, may, how they maintain their glucose values. And, for example, in the last third of pregnancy, a typical fasting blood sugar for a pregnant woman is somewhere between 65 and 70. Uh, after one hour after eating a meal, uh, a non-diabetic pre pregnant woman will elevate her glucose at one to two hours, really no more than 120 milligrams per deciliter. So if that's what's normal, um, you, have to, you have to worry that any blood sugars over those levels could be problematic. To suffice it to say, we don't know uh, what the ideal target is to avoid fetal obesity, but clearly getting closer to those numbers makes the most sense. How are we going to get there? Well, certainly dietary control makes a big difference. Uh, that the pancreas is forced to make a lot of insulin, and if we can um, be kind to our pancreas by um, taking in foods that are not uh, heavy in carbohydrates, commonly moderately carbohydrate and mixed with other nutrients such as protein, causes a more um, uh, delayed or gradual release of glucose into the uh, gut and uh, from the gut into the bloodstream and allows the pancreas to uh, keep up. So we can get do a lot 
with uh, making simple adjustments to diet. What oral agents are approved to use with gestational diabetes? Well, officially approved, um, I, I can't think of a single one. Uh, but ones that are being used now are metformin and uh, glyburide. Your patients have done so well, and and a lot of obstetricians like yourself use those oral agents uh, if they feel they're safe. At what point do you switch to insulin? When we can't control the blood sugars with oral agents. So you're just trying to keep uh, the blood sugars as close to the non-diabetic pregnancy state as possible. Right. And, you know, the targets that we're using these days are keeping uh, fastings under 90 to 95 milligrams a deciliter and the one-hour postprandial is under 130. And and we get very good results with that using either insulin or an oral agent. Well, thanks, Tom. I'd like to thank our guest, Director of Perinatal Medicine at UCSD Medical Center in San Diego, California, Dr. Thomas Moore. Dr. Moore, thanks so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. In my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.